nobody knew what a homosexual looked like in the 1960s or almost no one. And he said, if you want a job, you have to look like you want a job, which meant that in these pro the early protests in 1965, when you see these pictures in front of the White House, the men are in coat and tie, the women are in skirts and blouses and heels, um, and the, the signs are all coordinated. And he was attacked. Someone said to him, you can't market gay people like toothpaste. And he said, no, you can. You can do exactly that. Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room to listen to all of our podcast episodes without any ads. You get access to our video episodes, our bonus episodes, and even more exclusive content, including merchandise. It only starts at $5 a month, so head on over to our Patreon. Again, it's patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. And while you're at it, you know what would be such a help is if you could rate and review the ivory tower boiler room on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and make sure that you follow us and share out our podcast to all of your friends. It truly does help. And I want to thank you all. It means so much that you're listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I'm so excited to shout out the Gay and Lesbian Review, who is helping to sponsor the ITBR podcast. For all of you out there, the Gay and Lesbian Review is a bi-monthly magazine where you can discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture. And... The GL Review publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and their popular art memo column. Each issue of the magazine brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme. For example, their September-October issue centers on the theme, Cracking the Closet. So, starting in the 19th century, a number of artists and writers found ways to crack the closet by expressing their sexuality between the lines or in the interstices of their work. For example, Ignacio Darnad, who is a friend of the ITBR podcast, he's been on our show, writes all about illustrator J.C. Leyendecker, whose work for Ivory Soap and Arrow Collars gave him plenty of opportunities to draw pictures of well-dressed and, at times, scantily dressed American men. And you also can find an article by Vernon Rosario, who has been on the podcast, and he talks about the quest for sex in the Middle Ages. So to subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe. So on their website, go all the way over to the right-hand side, and you'll see the button subscribe. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR50 because you're getting 50% off your subscription to the print or digital edition of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine. I can't wait for you all to have your copy of the Gay and Lesbian Review magazine and make sure that you take a picture when your magazine arrives or when you're reading it online and tag the GL Review on Instagram and ITBR and we'll share it out in our stories. Enjoy your reading, everyone.
Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm really excited because I was joking with my guests that, well, I wasn't joking that he's iconic, but he found that humorous. <laughs> uh, but he is someone who has basically been in the orbit here on the podcast since we had Michaela Grifo on, who was part of the Gay Liberation Front, um, Thomas Wall, who like was part of the first Queer Studies Conference, Vernon Rosario. I feel that there's been a lot who are part of the 1970s to 80s history, but I'm so happy to actually be joined with Eric Marcus, who is first the founder and host of Making Gay History, a podcast that I've been binging while at the beach. And he knows I've been tanning and taking in the sun rays <laughs> and swimming as I'm listening to his new coming out series, which we'll definitely talk about. Uh, but he also is the writer, of course, of Making Gay History, but it first was called Making History in 1992. So I'll have to ask him, why did it, the name change to Making Gay History? He also wrote Why Suicide, Breaking the Surface. Um, he wrote the number one New York Times bestselling autobiography of Olympic diving champion Greg Luganis, who actually recently was on my friend Rachel Yucatel's podcast. So oh, that's uh, great. That's Yes, yes. Um, her podcast is called Misunderstood, and she interviewed him. Uh, and I know that you also wrote another I Thought Sports Robbie, didn't you do Robbie's autobiography? I, I've written several auto, uh, okay. sports autobiographies, including Robbie Rogers' autobiography, okay. Rudy, uh, also Rudy Galindo's autobiography. Okay. Um, you're, he also is the co-producer of Those Who Were There, um, a podcast drawn for, from the Fortune Off video archive for Holocaust testimonies. He's the founder and chair emeritus of the Stonewall 50 Consortium, which was well, such an amazing organization. And he's a founding board member of what I can't wait for, the American LGBTQ Plus Museum. I can't wait for it actually to open. And I'm yeah, sure that's too. going to be, <laughs> yes, a fabulous party. I hope I get invited to it. Um, and first, Eric, it just means so much that you are here in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and just sharing space with you is incredible. Oh, I'm so delighted to be on your show. How did you come to name your, I know you're interviewing me, but forgive me. Mm -hmm. How did you come to name your podcast, The Ivory Tower uh, Boiler Room? Well, so it's this metaphor of myself with an academic persona meets the everyday life or the basement level of the artistic process. So uh -huh. how does the sausage get made? Uh, so- mm -hmm. Yeah, not in the ivory tower. It gets made in the basement. No, exactly. Yeah. So it's like this really nice mixing of the darkness of the basement with the beauty and glory of an ivory tower fairy tale. Like yes. the yeah. two worlds right. meet somewhere. Um, yeah, so no, thanks for that. But at, since I just got my PhD and I now always call myself an unapologetic gay scholar, I really find it fascinating just your career of publishing, but also in your recent podcasts, like let's start with coming out in the seventies, if that's okay, because I feel sure, it gives sure. us a lot more of who you are as a person where your publications don't necessarily, yeah, you wouldn't it know. wasn't necessarily a memoirist style. No, no. In fact, when I did the original, uh, making gay history, which was called making history in its first edition, I was very clear about leaving myself out of it 
Um, I very much wanted to be the uh, omniscient uh, journalist letting other people tell their stories. But of course, you know, behind the scenes, you have a hand in how a book is organized and how you uh, characterize the history and how you contextualize it. So even though I'm not personally in it, um, I'm very, you know, my hand is, is, is uh, I hope, invisible, but very much present. Uh, but in the current, in the recent season of Making Gay History, uh, which was called Coming of Age during the 1970s, it is very me memoir-esque. Uh, my experience of growing up as a gay kid in the 1970s set against the backdrop of the, uh, what became the gay liberation phase of the gay and lesbian civil rights movement. So yes, and I wound up talking about things that I never expected to talk about in uh, in any way, shape or form, but yeah, um, yeah. And there's beautiful, just what you do so well is this archive audio. Like I remember specifically, you have a lot with Sylvia Rivera and yes. Star, yes. Um, the, the organization that she founded, that it really nicely mixes with you providing the background, but then actually hearing from even, I'm going to forget her name, but she was the founder of PFLAG, the parents. Oh yes, of course, Jean, Jean Manford, Jean and Morty Man and her son, Morty Manford, yes. And and I, I I never it never occurred to me when I was young that that how iconic Jean was and Morty because of their their efforts in founding PFLAG fifty years ago, um, and then my mother became very involved in PFLAG, and then only years after her death, I learned that my mother co-founded PFLAG Queens with Jean Manford, but my mother wow. didn't tell me because I had scolded her once about about the fact that this was my work and my my world and what was she doing messing in it um but i really wish she had told me that she was she was a co-founder of fifly queens i comments it's she's been dead for 14 years when i learned that oh wow and yeah. i'm assuming that fifly queens is still going on oh yeah very much so yeah. yeah 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 well was this when the well the lgbt network is pretty new right in recent history on long island and queens Yes, yes, relatively, okay. yeah. But P Flag, uh, P Flag Queens goes back um, probably twenty years, maybe more. Um, I, I, I have so lost track of time now that I'm an old person. Um, it all, it all gets uh, squished together. Well, did the genesis of making history, um, specifically for everyone out there, it's making history: the struggle for gay and lesbian equal rights, nineteen forty-five to nineteen ninety. Was this a genesis that started when you went to Vassar for your undergrad or when you went for your master's at Columbia? Neither. Or it had nothing to do with academia? Nothing to do with academia. I was working at CBS News at the time in 1988 when a friend of mine who was an editor at Harper and Row, now Harper Collins, they you know, merged and changed mm -hmm. names, called and asked if I would consider writing a proposal for an oral history of what was then called the Gay and Lesbian Civil Rights Movement. And I said to him... Um, I'm not an academic. I know nothing about this history. Why are you asking me? And he said, well, I liked how you did dialogue in your first book, The Male Couple's Guide to Living Together, which was published in 1988. Um, and I want a, a book that the general audience can read, um, a book like Studs Terkel's working in. I was very familiar with Studs Terkel's work. He's a famous oral historian, had a radio show in Chicago. He's long dead. Um, although he did interview me for his his show in Chicago, which was talk about an icon. He was an extraordinary um, uh, oral historian. 
And it just happened to be at a moment when I got that call, when I was thinking about what to do at CBS, I was there on a six month contract. I was negotiating a four year contract. Um, so they wanted me to stay on as a segment producer for the CBS morning show, which was then called CBS this morning with Harry Smith and Kathleen Sullivan. Um, Kathleen, who I adored, who brought me over from ABC, from Good Morning America after I got fired from Good Morning America. And um, I hated CBS. That was one problem. The other problem was that I really wanted to be on the other side of the camera. I wanted to be a correspondent. Um, and there was nobody who was out and gay on national network news cable anywhere in the country. And so I asked for a meeting with a CBS executive who was a, a graduate from Vassar. She was 10 years older than I, than I am. And uh, she was head of talent. And that's what they call the on-air people, talent. Whether they were talented or not, they were called talent. And um, it was a very uncomfortable conversation because she really didn't want to answer me when I asked whether they put an openly gay person on camera. And it was too late by that. I couldn't go back in the closet. I didn't want to go back in the closet. And my publisher had very helpfully sent a copy of the Male Couples Guide to every single person at CBS News um, in February of 88, not long after I started at CBS. Um, I came into work one morning and the book was on every desk in the office. Um, oh, wow. And one of my colleagues, um, who was just terrific, um, another producer, a booker, she said, um, can I ask you a question? I said, of course. She said, who plays the husband and who plays the wife? And I knew her husband was a CBS executive and she had a big job at CBS this morning. I said, well, who plays the husband? Who plays the wife in your relationship? Stopped her cold. Um, and, but usually when people are asking about who plays the husband, who plays the wife, they want to know who's on top in bed. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're asking sexual physicians. Yeah. I haven't that asked they... that. Yeah, I no, and then question. they try to collapse it into gender ideology, <laughs> yes. and yeah, there's well, it's very Dan Savage. I feel Dan Savage does a lot of that cultural work of yeah. um, addressing the heterosexual public and shocking them. Uh, yes, well, I try not to. I'm I'm so not Dan Savage. Um, I, I'm not good at shocking, uh, but I am. I, I got very good at asking people in gentle ways questions that would make them question what they had just asked me. Um, or stop them in their tracks so that they're thinking have to think about what they're what they're actually asking. Um, I left CBS to write that proposal. Um, my then partner and I dis discussed whether we could afford for me to leave CBS. Um, mm -hmm. I was reluctant to leave because of the prestige of working at CBS News, which it was then very prestigious, especially having come from the J School at Columbia, the journalism school. Um, because there was no guarantee they were going to buy the book at Harper. He asked for a proposal. He said, I, I'm likely to buy it. I can't guarantee it. But long story short, they bought it. Um, and the reason we called it making history and not making gay history is we were concerned uh, about the capacity of the sales force at Harper and Row to sell a book with the word gay in the title. And also we're concerned that uh, bookstores would not place the book face out if it had the word gay in the title. Mm. Uh, 10 years later, we did a new edition in uh, 2002 and the world had changed so dramatically in 10 years, changed the title to Making Gay History, nobody batted an eyelash. Um, yeah, so. and there's a, the pride flag is on the cover in the new edition. I mean, very visible. Um, oh yeah, it's very gay. But I, to give you an ex just an example of how things evolved during that time, when The Male Couple's Guide was published in 1988, I wanted an image of, of two guys on the cover. They wouldn't do it. It was just all text. Wow. Second edition, um, it was just... Uh, hands, two hands clasped. It was my hands and my and my late ex. And the third edition, they had two guys walking on the beach, shot from behind, in jeans rolled up you know, to their knees, 
and it was kind of sweet. Um, yeah. So that was just over a period of um, 15 years. The, so that's how I could mark the changes. But in academic terms, so I know that's, that's, I know that's your realm, on the back of books, I'm sure you've seen this, there's shelving information. It mm -hmm. says, you know, American studies, American history, gay studies, whatever. Um, when the second edition of, of Making Gay History was published in, my, in 2002, I insisted that we have shelving information on the back that said American history slash gay studies. The previous edition, the original, only said gay studies. But uh -huh. my feeling was this is part of American history. So it was never shelved with American history. Only gay studies, alternative lifestyles. Like, I remember asking some bookstore owners, what do you mean by alternative lifestyles? Because, you know, is that yoga, meditation, vegetarianism? Because the only thing under alternative lifestyles was homosexuals. Um, so um, I insisted that we have American history slash case studies. I saw the page, I asked for all the proofs. So I saw the, the uh, cover proof and the cover proof had American history slash case studies. The book was published it said case studies. Somebody cut American history from the back of the book. Um, I don't know who did it. No one would cop to it. Um, and it was really disappointing. That's, you know, that's 20 years ago, uh, 21 years ago. Things have changed considerably now. And I don't think anyone would argue that that LGBTQ history isn't American history. No. Well, and you set the stage or the page, so to speak, for so much LGBTQ history books. I mean, I'm thinking of A Queer History of the United States, well, there are so by Michael Bronsky, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's been so many. There's, I think Lillian Faderman has a book well, out. Well, Lillian and I had, uh, we were reviewed on the, on the cover of the New York Times Book Review at the same time. She did her book on, um, it was something Twilight Lovers. I've forgotten the first part of the title. Um, I adore Lillian. She's done incredible history yes. work. Oh, about lesbian lovers. Yes, 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 mm -hmm. yes. Um, so we were reviewed jointly on the cover of the New York Times Book Review in 1992. So yeah, and I wasn't the first. Jonathan Dead Katz did his wonderful uh, 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 gay American history book years mm -hmm. before my book. Um, but um, I, it's nice. To, it's nice to think I hadn't actually thought about this before. That 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 it might have opened the door to lots of other histories. Um, well, and that all of you. What's interesting is there's with the uh, LGBTQ historians that not everyone it comes from academia but there's like john i'm thinking of jonathan and Katz. he's not trained in no. um lgbtq studies or history at a university but like all the archive footage he even got of visuals Amazing. and i think of his illustrations and photographs from the 19th century of same-sex desire that anyone who is invested or interested in you arriving at it from the oral history approach that anyone is welcome to the table to bring this to light. Yes. Um, Jim Kepner, who uh, founded an archive in Los Angeles, uh, it's half of, of the one archive at the USC libraries now. When I interviewed Jim, uh, who was a, uh, he worked at a, a milk box factory when he was young, but he was obsessed with gay history and had this incredible archive. I interviewed him in his broken down cottage in Los Angeles that was packed to the ceiling with stuff. Um, and all that stuff is now at the One Archives at the USC Libraries. Um, and when I first encountered the One Archives, it was in a basement of a mansion in Hancock Park in LA. Um, Dor Legg was the founder of that archive. Boy, was he eccentric, but also not an academic. But they had they created the first um, gay studies program um, at the one at, at the One Institute in LA 
in the 19, what the 1950s or 60s? I, I, it's, in, it's in the podcast. I don't always remember the history. Um, I have, I found, um, I was never really welcomed by, by the LGBTQ academics because oh, yeah, my, that's what I was going to ask you, like say uh, not to single out, but say a Martin Duberman or no, not like, there's a certain that world. Uh, 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 uh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, that was, I was never um, invited in to that world. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. And recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture? In the spring, I had on doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions. And how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens, and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So what better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all, all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. But as one of my friends who worked in academia said, I had a lot more freedom to write what I wrote in the way that I wrote it because I'm not an academic. So um, The Male Couple's Guide is not an academic book. There were no footnotes in making gay history because I hate footnotes, um, but I really should have had them. Um, we've made up for that with the podcast because with our podcast episodes, each episode is accompanied by episode notes with all kinds of references and, and uh, additional information and links that people can use if they want to dig deeper. Uh, but so I've had greater freedom because I'm not an academic. Um, I do have a couple of master's degrees, but not in uh, not in in LGBTQ history, not even close. Yeah, but you're a public scholar. I mean, that's where, like you, even being in this space, I see myself as a public academic, and I will say that, like the millennial, my generation, we look to the work that those who weren't necessarily quote unquote trained in academia, we're mm -hmm. looking at all sources. So yeah. I do think we're now in a space, I don't know if you see this too, Eric, but I feel that LGBTQ studies specifically needs the academic and the public to meet together, Absolutely. which is what your podcast does. Yeah, there aren't enough academics to cover it all. There, there are so many citizen 
historians around the country who have been in touch with me about how do I do what you did, but do it in my community and tell that story and, and create, a, create a, an oral history archive. Because every city and town in the country has its own story, its own history, its own LGBTQ history. So um, I think there's, there's more than enough room in the space for people who are, the, who are academic um, and come at it from the, the academic uh, system, which you do, and for people like me who are citizen historians who, who fell into it accidentally. And I got lucky because at the time that I started my work, most of the people who founded our movement was still alive. Mm -hmm. um, and it was almost as if the dinosaurs still walked the earth. I got to interview the founders of the Managing Society and the Daughters of Belitis and the Society for Individual Rights and, you know, go down the list. Well, um, that's what I was going to ask, especially because those who are listening to this can listen to Michaela Grifo speak about being part of uh, the radical lesbians and mm -hmm. like the fracturing that she was talking a lot about the fracturing that she started to see, especially now in recent years. I mean, she has this moment about where are the lesbians or like feeling that some feel that they're not being represented in no. the LGBTQ movement broadly. Um, and she was, you know, very open about that activist spirit. Like I think of when you hear Sylvia Rivera's speech in your episode, it is just so, um, or not Sylvia Rivera's speech. Uh, Sylvia Rivera had a friend you talk about who was actually a teacher uh oh my goodness um yes bb scarpinati bb scarpy oh that's an amazing piece of tape uh, um in, at uh, city hall in 1971 yeah these were you know we go through cycles there are moments of of uh of um that call for that kind of activism and that kind of speak uh, speaking um that kind of confrontation and then there are moments where people work uh, more effectively from the inside and it goes back and forth over time i've seen i've now lived long enough to see multiple cycles of it and also interview people who lived through earlier cycles of it. But that moment after Stonewall was one of those moments. It was a galvanizing moment when people really poured into the streets and into city halls around the country to pass, to get legislation passed. And it was fueled by young people. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of now of David, uh, does David Hogue pronounce his name, David Hogue? The kid who- Oh yes, with- um. Gun rights. I'm like the gun protection for gun rights and yeah, yeah. And he just after um yeah, after what happened at Parkland. with um at Parkland, Parkland High School. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. In Florida. And he's just launched a new national organization for young uh people to get involved in, in getting elected to state legislatures. Um it's almost always this this way that it that the that it comes from young people who arrive in the world and are not happy with the way things are and see a path to change things. And usually there's a trigger of some kind, um, yeah. as there was in 1969 and 69 with the Stonewall Uprising. Or a Greta Thunberg, for example, for climate change, like her being seen as the face. Even yes. that, well, Jane Fonda, I would say though Jane Fonda and her, right. there is a lot of intergenerational work happening in these yes. spaces. Yeah. Or even what's happening now with SAG-AFTRA, that's a very intergenerational movement with yes. Fran Drescher being the vocal you know, president, spokesperson. I um, went to I went to high school with Fran Drescher. Did you? Oh yeah, she's from Flushing, isn't she? She went to she went to, yeah she went to Hillcrest High School, and um, I used to talk like that. No, I didn't have a laugh quite as as dramatic as that. I never did. 
Um, and my accent was probably a little lighter, but but I worked very hard to get rid of my accent because I thought it would ruin my career. And it really has worked very well for her. She's amazing. She is just amazing. And people underestimate her. Um, um, yes. I think like, I don't on- think. Yeah, they didn't realize how much activism she had already been doing with um, political bills. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, I know She's a tough I have cookie. a lot of hope. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, and I think something that you know you do bring up a lot in your recent episodes with your series of the 1970s, but even just with all of the different activists for all of you out there, like you know, beginning with Making Gay History, the podcast, but I know coming from your book, you do chart Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, the activists like going through each of their um, mm-hmm. profiles so to speak yeah but how they did not agree with each other at a lot of um, no 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 you know meeting points that there was a lot of fracturing <laughs> I even think of Larry Kramer and the way that he was actually villainized by a lot of gay men in the community well um, yes uh, there's always been fracturing there have been moments when people have been forced to come together as they did um, when things were really bad in the early days, in the 1950s, they were compelled to work together. But I remember Barbara Giddings saying to me, um, Barbara, who uh, was very involved with the Daughters of Belitis, was the editor of the latter magazine. She said there was a lot of antagonism toward the men because of their bathroom habits. They got arrested in bathrooms for ha- having sex, and it, and it reflected badly on the women. Um, and the men often treated the women the way men treated women in those days, even though they were gay. And then there were splits between the masculine presenting men and the feminine presenting men. Uh, Martin Block, who was the editor of one magazine, said to me, this is in the early 50s, he said some people drank tea with their little pinkies out, and some men drank tea with their little pinkies in. And um, some men couldn't stand the swishes and didn't want them coming to meetings. Um, And he said, but he said, I'm prejudiced against everyone. (laughs) So it was, there have always been splits. Sexuality is not we all have it in common, mm-hmm. but it it isn't something that necessarily means that everything else about our lives line up. Um, we are compelled to work together, the LGBTQ communities, because we are um, demonized. Um, mm-hmm. Right now, trans people demonize more than anyone else. But in the old days, when I was young, it was, it was plain old gay men um, who were, as you know from our recent season of the podcast, uh, we were called recruiters because you can't reproduce, you recruit. Um, well, that's you know, what I was going to say. You bring in the um, parallel of today's society with the whole grooming concept and yes. how this is not new. Like grooming, grooming goes back, goes back centuries. I mean, yes. like goes back forever. Yes, um, that there's a queer influence that's going to overtake the general public, almost right. as if it's invasion of the body snatchers. Right, right. Well, and 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 homosexuality is so terrible that if you try it once, you'll have to do it for the rest of your life. Um, uh, that was the case for, for me. Once I discovered it, there was no going back. It's no going back. Um, uh, I was recently... Um, filmed for a, 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 an activation for, for Verizon for the phone company during Pride. And the um, uh, hair and makeup person uh, asked me as they were setting up, she said, are you ready to be groomed? 
And I, boy, did I laugh. Um, it turns out she's a lesbian from the South, um, very religious family. Her family didn't accept her and her wife. Um, but I just, I just loved, she said, in fact, she said her fa father said something to her about, you know, using that word grooming. He said, well, grooming is what I do. Um, so I always say that I, I often say gay men have been obsessed with grooming, at least some gay men, grooming themselves. Um, and that we don't have to groom young people to become gay. They just do it all by themselves. Well, yeah, there's that excellent point in one of your recent episodes where there's, I forget who says it, but during a debate with um, a Democrat candidate or a Democrat yeah, candidate um, who wants to represent the bill for gay rights, that the audience of the LGBTQ audience has to educate him on, well, we didn't have out gay teachers. So how did we all become gay? Right. Like if you're saying that there's some kind of influence study, there's an influence of right. having to mirror this behavior. Why would you be afraid if right. there's still gay so, people? And so much of it now is is done cynically that the politicians who have have been promoting this idea of grooming and the and influence and all the rest, they know better. But they also know that there's a segment of the population that doesn't know better and is fearful. And so they use they use this as a political issue. And the reason they're using trans people now is that most people don't know someone trans. So it's easy to demonize people you don't know. And the, the most vulnerable people, of course, are trans kids. And so they're the easiest target. What the anti-trans folks don't realize or haven't come to understand yet is they are fucking with the parents. So all these trans kids have parents and parents are fierce. And we know from the history of PFLAG that PFLAG, uh, once galvanized, is a force to be reckoned with. The new president of PFLAG has a trans kid. She's the first president of PFLAG to have a trans kid. And I wouldn't want to get in her way. She looks like she's out of central casting um, from uh, for a Republican from Orange County from the 1980s. And she does live in Southern California and really looks the part. But you know, don't mess with her. Um, so I, I'm looking forward to the, the, the growth of the backlash against the backlash. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's already, I've been seeing on TikTok parents with trans kids who've moved out of Florida yeah, who have yeah. the privilege. Cause again, I think, right. We get into a conversation about privilege and state privilege and policies, and even how there are those who are Republican who are okay with those who are wealthy gay or lesbian people, but they're not okay with transgender people. Well, so it's almost trying to put us against each other. Oh yeah, and there are gay Republicans, like the log cabin mm -hmm. Republicans who said, why aren't the Republicans going after the, the left liberal gay people, you know, and not us nice gay Republicans. What they don't understand is, but I compare this to, um, I grew up in a neighborhood of, of mostly, um, well, some German Jews, but a lot of Eastern European Jews. And the German Jews were not so fond of the Eastern European Jews, um, not at the turn of the century, anyway, the turn of the 20th century, not the recent turn, um, that they blamed the, the great unwashed coming from Eastern Europe for a rise in anti-Semitism because the German Jews were the nice Jews um, mm. and the middle class and upper middle class Jews, the educated Jews, and the ones coming from, from the shtetls in, the, in Eastern Europe were the bad Jews. So, you know, every, every group does this to themselves and the log cabin Republicans seem not to understand that if they're going to take the drag queens away and take the trans kids away and take people like you and me away, 
they're coming for the Republican gays too. They're not protected. Yeah, well, it's kind of that shtick. I don't even like to give him a lot of airtime, but Milo. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, he just yeah. goes on a rant, and yeah. again, it's very tokenizing. And then the Republicans can claim, but look, here's a gay man who says everything right. that we validated. Right, um, and, they'll, and there'll always be people like that, and there have always been. I wish I I had included more people like that in my book. I only have I have one gay Republican in my book, the original Making mm. Gay History. We did a uh, an episode on him last year, Bob Bauman who was uh, had lots of kids, was devout Catholic and secretly gay and an alcoholic and then got caught and lost his job in Congress. Um, I'm actually very fond of him. He's in his mid-80s now. I think he's like, an, we have been through the wars, and but he's still a Republican. Although he's mm -hmm. not a Republican, he doesn't, I don't think he votes Republican anymore. Um, but Is I he a George Santos type of Republican? Oh my, my God, no. Oh my God. Is he, is, this, is he your district on Long Island? No, no, no. He's Nassau County. I'm in uh -huh. Suffolk. Yeah, no, he's uh, the good old, I think, Hicksville and that area of Long uh -huh. Island. They get he's, to claim him. He's a seriously disturbed person, no question about that. But we've all, also met gay, gay people like that who are who are uh, become so expert at lying because we're taught to lie as gay people when you're young mm -hmm. and you hide. Um, and those who have mental health issues, as I'm sure he must, um he's an extreme version of uh of boy i can think of people as i grew up who who were like that who created whole personas um, yeah but how interesting though now instead of trying to throw him out because he's gay the republicans are clamoring to just keep him because of they need the vote they need the vote yeah it's very it's yeah crazy. that's what well that's what i was going to say how do you weigh in like if you had to return to the male couple's guide or even well wait i just wanted to ask with the male couple's guide had the joys of gay sex been published yet yes okay because yeah. i remember that was a very revolutionary text of its time with just yeah illustrations or this is how oh you have God. anal sex <laughs> yes i looked at that book in an aisle of a bookstore um I would never have bought that book. Oh my God. Um, no, the male couples guide came up, came a little later, but it was the first guide for male couples. I thought it was a rather innocuous book, but it was the first. And so I got a lot of attention. I did a ton of interviews simply because it was a guide for male couples. I had a chapter on sex, but in those days I joked that I was very good at taking the sex out of homosexual. Um, <laughs> and I dressed the part. I wore you know, button, a blue button down shirt and a blazer and the whole the whole business. I figured um, and I didn't speak with my hands. I tried to be as butch as I could um, so that my message was not lost um, because people would look at me and think he's a fag. Um, mm. So I did my my journalist drag. Um, yeah. yeah. You were kind of part of that. Right in the 1960s, what was the the gay men who formed the respectability? Oh, well, the Mattachine Society. And it yeah, was very, they were a little more white collar. Well, they were, it was very considered. Frank Kameny branded, wanted to brand gay people as, and he was right to do it when he did it. Nobody knew what a homosexual looked like in the 1960s or almost no one. And he said, if you want a job, you have to look like you want a job, which meant that in these pro the early protests in 1965, when you see these pictures in front of the White House, the men are in coat and tie, the women are in skirts and blouses and heels, 
um, and the, the signs are all coordinated. And he was attacked. Someone said to him, you can't market gay people like toothpaste. And he said, no, you can. You can do exactly that. Um, he had the slogan, gay is good. And um, those, those protests were very effective and appropriate at the time. Things changed very quickly. Um, well, especially in the 1970s. I just had well, Thomas uh, Wall on who uh -huh. talked about going to gay porn cinemas and like seeing um, boys in the sand at, I think it was the 55th street playhouse. There was uh -huh. studio 54. I mean, I'm sure you remember. I was, I was at culture. I was at studio. Yeah. Um, you like know, that to me was nostalgic or when I think of what it was like to be gay, I just try to imagine that partying, dancing lifestyle. My favorite dancing place was, and we didn't include this in the, uh, coming of age during the 1970s. We we didn't include as much of my memoir as I think I would have liked. Um, uh, we just couldn't because there was so much to to include. Um, you can do another series. Yeah, no. Oh my God, was it a heavy Eric's lift? memoirs. <laughs> I can see it, I can see it. My favorite place was the Ice Palace on West 57th Street. It was downstairs. It was a fantastic disco and it attracted a great crowd. Um, and I met Don Miller from Texas um at the ice palace in the late 1970s and last dance was the song that we danced to mm. um and then we took the subway the f train back to jamaica states queens where i was living at the time and there he was in his cowboy boots and his cowboy hat from texas on the subway um with me going back to queens and um it was it was great it was pre-aids LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog. So you can see all of this on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Remember, you get 50% off your subscription of the GL Review magazine when you use the promo code ITBR50. That's 50% off your print or digital subscription when you use promo code ITBR50. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, Visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of their homepage. And if you have any questions, email Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Hi, everyone. This is Andrew, and I am interrupting what I know is such an exciting Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and it's hosted by Christian Garcia. Christian is joined with guest co-hosts to talk about classic cinema films that we know and love, and he analyzes them through a queer lens. So he's talked about The Sound of Music, Alfred Hitchcock, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and recently, Hello, Dolly. 
I actually was on his first ever episode to talk about my love of the sound of music and playing Captain Von Trapp in my high school musical. Then I was joined with Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime in Academia, and our friend Travis Roundtree to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mary just had Christian on True Crime in Academia to talk about female poisoners, including the evil queen from Snow White and actual real life female poisoners. So Christian's podcast is the best. You must add it to your listen list. After you listen to this episode, make sure you head over to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple and Spotify. Make sure you follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And he's also on TikTok. Don't forget TikTok. Okay. I can't wait for you all to listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It. Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. And order today. It was, it was for me, I was a relatively privileged person. It was a great time to be a gay kid and, and coming of age. And I, uh, yep, yeah, it was a great time. Great time. Well, it, I've had a it, well, yeah. Well, and then the and 80s. Then it changed. Yeah, and Don yeah. Miller has been dead for decades. So, mm. well, and but something I'm feeling right now in our current moment, even though like we've talked about backlash to the LGBTQ community, especially transgender, the transgender community being surveilled or the policing. Yeah, yeah. There also though is a hyper, in my opinion, I'm seeing the hyper. Um, sexualized liberation in a way. I feel like we maybe are back to the 70s. I don't know if it's because of prep. I don't know if it's because like those in my circle yeah, yeah. were dancing I... Barbie also it's very <laughs> disco-y. Yes. There's a lot of disco music coming back. I, yes, well, disco is the best music to dance to. Mm -hmm. um, when I, if I'm ever in a nursing home, I want, I want that music um, to sleep by uh, or nap by. Um, I think prep has certainly changed things, but as I, I had a coffee with a young friend who told me about being on prep, I said, well, this is before monkeypox. I said, well, what if another virus winds up out there um, that spread um, the way that AIDS spread, you know, you didn't know, and then it shows up and prep isn't going to protect you from that. And then monkeypox showed up. The fact is we're human. And if you're going to be very sexually active, the odds are that if you're, if you don't take 
these are normal precautions and condoms and all the rest that you lead yourself open to infection of some kind at some point. Um, but, but humans will be humans and um, it's great to be in denial just as people now feel that COVID is over. Um, I've only been out of isolation for two days. I might add, I was, I was in isolation for 12 days with COVID, um, which oh. is why my, my voice is what it is now. Um, yeah, it, it's, if you're young and you want to meet people and you have friends, you want to go out and dance and have a good time. And absolutely. Why not? Why not? Yeah. Well, the best thing with prep, because I am on prep is you have to be with your doctor every three months. So mm. I am getting tested for of every, I'm getting tested Everything for else, all yeah. of the STIs. So yeah. it's not like you just can get prep and then it's not like Ozempic in the same analogy, but even with Ozempic, you have to be monitored. You have to be monitored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like prep. Yeah. You do, you can't just take prep and then not check back in with your doctor. Right, right. And for someone like me of my generation, I was so traumatized. I couldn't imagine having unprotected sex that would require prep. Yeah. Even, yeah. even with my partner. Yeah. So I think, yeah, this is where there's a difference in generational thinking. Of course, um, of course. But I also do feel, I don't want to say, are we making up for, for lost just time? the loss of the well, 80s generation? But I do feel that generations like your generation my generation we are now starting like i see a lot of these intergenerational friendships even when i go to fire island uh -huh. which is what liberates me is talking to the older generation and having conversations sure and our experience is different from your experience and it's interesting i've had many conversations with younger people about what the aids crisis was like i remember talking with people about what world war ii was like when i was a kid because my parents generation lived through world war ii it's the way we connect and we don't have that natural connection among gay people because it, our parents aren't gay. They can't talk about their experience. So, so I'm delighted to hear that there's intergenerational conversation in a place like Fire Island and other places where gay people gather. And then my friend, uh, my uh, acquaintance, Wes Enos, has the Generations Project and mm -hmm. Sage does a lot of intergenerational work as well. Um, there's so much to be learned. I had the chance when I was 30 years old to sit next to um, and in front of um, all of these older people, people who are my age and older, 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, and ask them about their experiences. And it was fascinating. It is so interesting to learn about other people's experiences. And one thing I did learn is that there has always been gay joy. Mm -hmm. No matter how bad the times were, people always had found ways to have good times. Um, it was more risky um, at times, and, um, and uh, the stakes were much higher. But people have always managed. There's always been gay joy. Yeah. Well, and that to me is what the emblem is of Studio 54 as just a meaning was to just let loose. And so many cultures came together. I mean, mm -hmm. it really was. Although. although oh, well, see, I don't know. See, that's the nostalgia. <laughs> that's the like Donna Summer. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the Studio feeling. 54 was, was a horrible yeah. place in some ways. It was $15 to get in in 1977 oh, that's... when I went. That's a lot. A lot of money. In That's probably what now, like ninety dollars, eighty dollars, fifteen dollars. Those nineteen seventies, um, probably four times as much. So, so sixty or seventy dollars, yeah, to get in. Um, and wow. also, you couldn't just walk into Studio Fifty Four. There was a bouncer, and he mm -hmm. picked out who got in. I went with my friend, my friend Kevin Barrel. Um, not Kevin Barrel. Um, um, oh, what was Kevin's last name? I can't remember. Kevin died many years ago. Um, it was with Kevin, who was like six foot two and striking. He had a jaw like your jawline, but even more oh. chiseled. And 
uh, he was wearing a tuxedo. I borrowed a tuxedo and we were there with our friend Lisa. And it was winter, she was in a coat and, and they like the crowd parted as we arrived. And the, the, the um, bouncer pointed to us and asked Kevin who was, uh, who he was with. And, the, and Kevin pointed to me and he pointed to our friend Lisa. And he said, what's she wearing? Now, the right answer to that is fuck you. The wrong answer is open your ja is to open your jacket and show the bouncer what you're wearing. And he looked her up and down. She was wearing a magnificent red dress and this magnificent gold necklace from her mother. And they swept us in and it was $15 a person. So while it was a wonderful place, it was a very discriminatory place. Mm -hmm. so, it was kind of like going to a Broadway show in a way. Oh, it was much harder. You could with Broadway show, you can buy a ticket. Anyone can go. But yeah. But you couldn't, I remember I have another friend from, from Vassar who wanted to go to Studio 54. I said, we're not going to get in. And she said, well, yeah. I want to go. I said, well, I'll take you, but we're not going to get Just in. Just the exclusivity of it. Well, but that exclusivity, um, it kind of is interesting though. Do you feel that though, it doesn't seem like they were necessarily excluding though, gay men. Or like necessarily they were trying no, no, to no, no, no. They were, discriminate they wanted, against sexuality. They wanted, they wanted beautiful people. Yeah, yeah, they were discriminating against ugly people um, and people who didn't look the part. You know, it was really, they were casting the 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 people who were there. Um, the Ice Palace was not like that. So you could, you know, anybody could go. Um, but you still So the Ice have... Palace was the more uh, egalitarian. Well, it was more, and it was, more, it was, it was gay men. Um, uh, okay. It was all gay. It was all gay. Did it have anything to do with the Ice Palace in Cherry Grove on Fire Island? I'm guessing it was a, it was a branch of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, and let's talk just a little about Fire Island because you do have things to say about it. <laughs> I don't want to reveal everything. I mean, there's some uh, coming out trauma, so to speak, I'll say, or just an experience yeah, you have there that's not pleasant. No, I was taken there when I was 16 years old by a neighbor uh, who was a reverend um, who was trying to bring me out of the closet. And it was it was too soon, and um, it was way too soon. Um, yeah, so uh, Fire Island is beautiful. I have been a number of times. I'll tell you about the second time I was there, and uh, that wasn't it's not in the memoir, uh, not in the recent season. The second time I went, it was after the first time when I was sixteen. I didn't go back for for I don't know four years, five years. Okay. Um, I went with a guy I was dating, and um, got to to the house and everybody was normal they were a little older i was probably 20 they were all in their mid-20s to late 20s or early 30s get up the next morning and everyone is in leather uh, head to toe leather and it turns out it was master slave weekend what did i know and i packed up my things and left and that was the end of the boyfriend um because i was i really was not into that that, that whole scene it was shocking to me um, but I did love the beach. I grew up near the beach. Um, I now can't go to the beach because I've had skin cancer several times. So enjoy the sun. I hope you're wearing number 30 or 50 sunscreen. Um, there wasn't sunscreen when I was a kid. So um, no beach for me anymore. Yeah, no. Well, I'm sorry about, well, thank goodness you're on the other side of that. Um, but no, I go to the dermatologist a lot and yes, I go every try to months. be proactive. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially with my face. It's always SPF 70. Um, but you well, can see, see from my neck that it was not, I didn't, uh, yeah. No. no one can see this, thankfully. Yes, we're, we're, we're on the radio. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, they can see it if it comes out as a social media clip. But I'm not sure if I'll put this that part out. It's um, fine. It's fine. Yeah. Or if they listen, if they watch us on Patreon. But I know you have a Patreon too. I want to plug with Making Gay History. You get exclusive extra archival <laughs> yes. footage. Um, archival and also uh, contemporary interviews. I do new interviews for the for, for Patreon. Oh, wonderful. And yeah. well, what I wanted to ask, I wanted to return to. Um, those who are out back to your CBS days, but how yeah. do you, what do you think now? I mean, there's Sam champion. There's, I grew up in the Philly area. There's Adam Joseph. Oh my God. There's so, you know. there are so there's many. so many faces. Anderson Cooper, there are so uh, Andy many. Cohen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they, and most of them have no idea. Um, although some of them like Anderson Cooper stayed in the closet for a very long time. Robin Roberts did as well because they had a good, and also Sam champion were like, who didn't know Sam champion was gay. Um, with that hair, and you know, this is terrible for me to say. I happen to have seen him making out with his boyfriend in St. Bart's at a hotel many years ago. Um, thinking, well, that's not, you're not doing a very good job of staying in the closet by doing that. And he was in the closet then. And also, why are you making out with your boyfriend in a public place like that? It's just, I'm my grandmother. It's like, that's not appropriate. There are places for, for making out, and that's not one of them. Um, uh, I think it's great. I think it's great for this new generation that you can just be who you are and be uh, on camera and you can be a journalist. And it's not, I, I was, I was one of the founding members of the National Lesbian Gay Journalists Association in the early nineties. There were no out journalists. It was too dangerous. You couldn't keep your job. There were out journalists who worked for gay publications, but not for mainstream publications. So I think it's great. And I will also admit to a bit of envy that it's the career I wanted, but couldn't have, but then I couldn't have had the career that I had. And the career that I had is, to me, very meaningful. I've been very fortunate. Um, well, that's I, what I was going to say is, do you have those in the public eye? I mean, you're in the public eye, but like, you know, do you have those in the entertainment industry who've read your work or would there be anyone surprising maybe to those listening that you really appreciated that they had looked up your work? Maybe it's even when you worked with um, the out athletes, like that intersection of a community. Um, there have been people who've written to me who are closeted, who, who are, are certainly appreciated my work. And years ago, I sent my, uh, third or fourth book, um, um, I, my third or fourth, fourth book I sent to Anderson Cooper when he was a young journalist and he, I still have his handwritten note saying, I wish I could, I could do what you do and be out. Um, I don't remember if I wrote back, I might've written back and said, well, you could. Um, but it was years later, it was probably 20 years later that it came out. Um, the piece that, that, that sometimes annoys me is that by the time Robin Roberts came out and Anderson Cooper, they were well-established. The world had changed a lot and, and, and social Sam champion, um, the stakes were much lower, um, by the time they came out, but everyone, you know, it's in, it's in everyone's time. I can't judge. I can, but I can't judge. Uh, people for when they when they choose to came out, come out. It's everyone's journey is different, and I simply could not live in the closet. It did not suit me. I'm a terrible liar, and I just hated it. So I have been out for a very long time. Yeah. Well, so where do you see? You know, what can you tease us about making gay history? Your newer seasons, like where is Eric going with uh, his current? Thirst for queer history. Um, our next season is going to be about gay and lesbian people who are caught up in the Holocaust. Yeah. Um, we're doing is very little material out there, but we're gonna we're gonna make something out of what little is there. 
Um, and we're doing it in partnership with the Fortunate Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, where I also produce a podcast. Um, we have a season of that podcast coming out before the next Making Gay History season. The next Making Gay History season won't, won't be out for a while. Um, but for the Holocaust podcast, we have a new season coming out in uh, September 21st. We're launching a 10-part audio documentary on uh, the experience of Jews in the city of Vilna, Poland, before, during, and after World War II. It's now Vilnius, Lithuania. And we'll be launching the podcast in Vilnius, Lithuania. I'll be there in September. And it is uh, drawing, it draws on mostly um, testimony from uh, survivors. Uh, there were somewhere between 55 and 60,000 Jews in Vilna out of a population of 200,000 and just a few thousand survived. It is astonishing. Um, if I say so myself, it's just an amazing 10 part series. So that's coming up next. And it's called, um, the series is called Those Who Are There Voices from the Holocaust. And this season is called Remembering Vilna, um, the Jerusalem of Lithuania. So that's what's that's what's next. The big thing we have coming up is a huge education project with Making Gay History, but we're not going to announce it until it's finished and we launch it um, next July. So stay tuned for that. It's a okay. big national education program. Yeah, I was wondering if there would be any, a documentary or something. Like I can see Making Gay History into a t even a TV serial in parts some type of yeah. streaming program yeah i hope one day um maybe but the the education project is something that that um would will wind up in the classroom and that's really important to me because so because kids just don't learn this and so we're going to be yeah. providing what is needed to teach uh, lgbtq history in high school and middle school yeah well, hopefully, I'm sure you know Jake Newsom, who wrote Pink Triangle Le Legacies. Yes. About yes, he's been on. I'm a friend of his. Um, so excited to hear what's coming up. September 21st is my birthday, actually. Oh. Um, I mean, it's a sad topic that you're exploring, <laughs> but you know, it's an important I, topic. But it's very important. It's very yeah. important, and like you said, the history needs to be visible and heard. Absolutely. Um, which is what I love about all your work, Eric. So thank, thank you, you so much. Where can everyone follow you on social media, your website? Yeah, so all you, the can, you can find Making Gay History at makinggayhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Twitter, ugh, X, at Making Gay History, um, at, on Instagram, Making Gay History Podcast, on Facebook. We are everywhere. Um, yeah, everywhere, everywhere. We, we're everywhere. Wherever. And I have everything in the show notes. So great, thank you, great. Eric. This was wonderful. And thank you, you know, for of the me. listeners. Yeah, I hope to have you back again. Well, maybe, especially with this educational program, I'd love to have you back. I would love that. And I look forward very much to speaking about what we're doing once we've got it launched. Yeah. Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I hope you have a good rest Thanks. of your day. Thanks. Okay. Bye, -bye. Bye Eric. Hi, this is Dr. Andrew Rimby. I want to thank you so much for listening to the ITBR and TCIA episodes. Make sure if you don't, follow, rate, and review us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure you follow ITBR on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and TCIA on TikTok and Instagram at True Crime and Academia. Also, we have a brand new Patreon 
membership system. So I just want to explain it to you all quickly. So if you want to become an ITBR student, it is $5 a month. You get ad-free ITBR and TCIA episodes and video interviews. If you want to become an ITBR professor for $10 a month, you get all of those ad-free benefits, but you also get access to both the ITBR and TCIA book clubs. You can join both book clubs, get ad-free episodes, plus you're going to get all of our extra video episodes. So I am re-watching Queer as Folk. Christian Garcia from That Old Gay Classic Cinema is joining us, and he's re-watching Smash. Um, Mary is going to start to re-watch shows as well. You even get access to what I'm calling the ITBR teaches. So if I'm recapping a movie or a TV show, including Barbie, um, Halloween movies and horror films, you get access to that as well. And then I also am offering consultation services. So for $30, you get your first initial consultation with me. It's a one hour private Zoom. I will help create a, your podcast, your media brand. How do you navigate academia as an undergrad or a grad student? Do you need help with technology? It could be teaching tools, Spotify for podcasters, video editor so software. Do you want to expand your social media presence as an artist, writer, podcaster, or academic? Do you want help on how to create a public humanities identity like I've created for myself? So I now I'm offering that consultation service. You can find more info about it on Patreon. And you also can join our book clubs. If you want to just join the ITBR book club or the TCIA book club, you can do that for $4 a month. Patreon.com backslash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. That is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Thanks to the team, Mary DePippi, our chief contributor. And thank you to our two new interns from Stony Brook University, Jonathan and Sarah. Bye, everyone. Until next time.